This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois Music and Text Recorded by Toria's Uncle Chapter 2 Of the Dawn of Freedom Careless seems the great avenger. History's lessons but record one death struggle in the darkness, twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Lowell. The problem of the twentieth century is the problem of the color line, the relation of the darker to the lighter races of men in Asia and Africa, in America and the islands of the sea. It was a phase of this problem that caused the Civil War, and however much they who marched south and north in 1861 may have fixed on the technical points of union and local autonomy as a shibboleth, all nevertheless knew, as we know, that the question of Negro slavery was the real cause of the conflict. Curious it was, too, how this deeper question ever forced itself to the surface, despite effort and disclaimer. No sooner had northern armies touched southern soil than this old question, newly guised, sprang from the earth, what shall be done with Negroes? Peremptory military commands this way and that could not answer the query. The Emancipation Proclamation seemed but to broaden and intensify the difficulties, and the war amendments made the Negro problems of today. It is the aim of this essay to study the period of history from 1861 to 1872, so far as it relates to the American Negro. In effect, this tale of the dawn of freedom is an account of that government of men called the Freedmen's Bureau, one of the most singular and interesting of the attempts made by a great nation to grapple with vast problems of race and social condition. The war has naught to do with slaves, cried Congress, the President, and the nation, and yet no sooner had the armies, east and west, penetrated Virginia and Tennessee than fugitive slaves appeared within their lines. They came at night, when the flickering campfires shone like vast unsteady stars along the black horizon old men and thin, with gray and tufted hair, women with frightened eyes, dragging, whimpering, hungry children, men and girls, stalwart and gaunt, a horde of starving vagabonds, homeless, helpless, and pitiable in their dark distress. 
Two methods of treating these newcomers seemed equally logical to opposite sorts of minds. Ben Butler and Virginia quickly declared slave property contraband of war and put the fugitives to work, while Fremont in Missouri declared the slaves free under martial law. Butler's action was approved, but Fremont's was hastily countermanded, and his successor, Halleck, saw things differently. Hereafter, he commanded, no slaves should be allowed to come into your lines at all. If any come without your knowledge, when owners call for them, deliver them. Such a policy was difficult to enforce. Some of the black refugees declared themselves freemen. Others showed that their masters had deserted them, and still others were captured with forts and plantations. Evidently, too, slaves were a source of strength to the Confederacy, and were being used as laborers and producers. They constitute a military resource, wrote Secretary Cameron, late in 1861, and being such that they should not be turned over to the enemy is too plain to discuss. So gradually the tone of the army chiefs changed. Congress forbade the rendition of fugitives, and Butler's contrabands were welcomed as military laborers. This complicated rather than solved the problem, for now the scattering fugitives became a steady stream, which flowed faster as the armies marched. Then the long-headed man with care-chiseled face, who sat in the White House, saw the inevitable, and emancipated the slaves of rebels on New Year's, 1863. A month later, Congress called earnestly for the Negro soldiers whom the Act of July, 1862, had half-grudgingly allowed to enlist. Thus the barriers were leveled, and the deed was done. The stream of fugitives swelled to a flood, and anxious army officers kept inquiring what must be done with slaves arriving almost daily. Are we to find food and shelter for women and children? It was a Pierce of Boston who pointed out the way, and thus became in a sense the founder of the Freedmen's Bureau. He was a firm friend of Secretary Chase, and when in 1861 the care of slaves and abandoned lands devolved upon the Treasury officials, Pierce was specially detained from the ranks to study the conditions. First he cared for the refugees at Fortress Monroe, and then after Sherman had captured Hilton Head, Pierce was sent there to found his Port Royal experiment of making free working men out of slaves. Before his experiment was barely started, however, the problem of the fugitives had assumed such proportions that it was taken from the hands of the overburdened Treasury Department and given to the Army officials. Already centers of massed freedmen were forming at Fortress Monroe, Washington, New Orleans, Vicksburg and Corinth, Columbus, Kentucky, and Cairo, Illinois, as well as at Port Royal. Army chaplains found here new and fruitful fields. Superintendents of contrabands multiplied, and some attempt at systematic work was made by enlisting the able-bodied men and giving work to the others. Then came the Freedmen's Aid Societies, born of the touching appeals from Pierce and from these other centers of distress. There was the American Missionary Association, sprung from the Amistad, and now full-grown for work the various church organizations, the National Freedmen's Relief Association, the American Freedmen's Union, the Western Freedmen's Aid Commission, in all fifty or more active organizations, which sent clothes, money, school books, and teachers southward. All they did was needed, for the destitution of the freedmen was often reported as too appalling for belief, and the situation was daily growing worse rather than better. And daily, too, it seemed more plain that this was no ordinary matter of temporary relief, but a national crisis 
for here loomed a labor problem of vast dimensions. Masses of Negroes stood idle, or if they worked spasmodically were never sure of pay, and if perchance they received pay, squandered the new thing thoughtlessly. In these and other ways were camp life and the new liberty demoralizing the freedmen. The broader economic organization thus clearly demanded sprang up here and there as accident and local conditions determined. Here it was that Pierce's Port Royal plan of leased plantations and guided workmen pointed out the rough way. In Washington, the military governor, at the urgent appeal of the superintendent, opened confiscated estates to the cultivation of the fugitives, and there in the shadow of the dome gathered black farm villages. General Dix gave over estates to the freedmen of Fortress Monroe, and so on, south and west. The government and benevolent societies furnished the means of cultivation, and the Negro turned again slowly to work. The systems of control thus started rapidly grew here and there into strange little governments, like that of General Banks in Louisiana, with its 90,000 black subjects, its 50,000 guided laborers, and its annual budget of $100,000 and more. It made out 4,000 payrolls a year, registered all freedmen, inquired into grievances and redressed them, laid and collected taxes, and established a system of public schools. So too, Colonel Eaton, the superintendent of Tennessee and Arkansas, ruled over 100,000 freedmen, leased and cultivated 7,000 acres of cotton land, and fed 10,000 paupers a year. In South Carolina was General Saxton, with his deep interest in black folk, he succeeded Pierce and the Treasury officials, and sold forfeited estates, leased abandoned plantations, encouraged schools, and received from Sherman, after that terribly picturesque march to the sea, thousands of the wretched camp followers. Three characteristic things one might have seen in Sherman's raid through Georgia, which threw the new situation in shadowy relief. The conqueror, the conquered, and the negro. Some see all significance in the grim front of the destroyer, and some in the bitter sufferers of the lost cause. But to me, neither soldier nor fugitive speaks with so deep a meaning as that dark human cloud that clung like remorse on the rear of those swift columns, swelling at times to half their size, almost engulfing and choking them. In vain were they ordered back, in vain were bridges hewn from beneath their feet. On they trudged, and writhed, and surged, until they rolled into Savannah a starved and naked horde of tens of thousands. There too came the characteristic military remedy. The islands from Charleston south, the abandoned rice fields along the river for thirty miles back from the sea, and the country bordering the St. John's River, Florida, are reserved and set apart for the settlement of Negroes, now made free by act of war. So read the celebrated field order number fifteen. All these experiments, orders, and systems were bound to attract and perplex the government and the nation. Directly after the Emancipation Proclamation, Representative Eliot had introduced a bill creating a Bureau of Emancipation, but it was never reported. The following June, a committee of inquiry appointed by the Secretary of War reported in favor of a temporary Bureau for the improvement, protection, and employment of refugee freedmen on much the same lines as were afterward followed. 
Petitions came in to President Lincoln from distinguished citizens and organizations, strongly urging a comprehensive and unified plan of dealing with the freedmen under a bureau which should be charged with the study of plans and execution of measures for easily guiding and in every way judiciously and humanely aiding the passage of our emancipated and yet to be emancipated blacks from the old condition of forced labor to their new state of voluntary industry. Some half-hearted steps were taken to accomplish this, in part by putting the whole matter again in charge of the special treasury agents. Laws of 1863 and 1864 directed them to take charge of and lease abandoned lands for periods not exceeding twelve months, and to provide in such leases or otherwise for the employment and general welfare of the freedmen. Most of the army officers greeted this as a welcome relief from perplexing Negro affairs, and Secretary Fessenden, July 29, 1864, issued an excellent system of regulations, which were afterward closely followed by General Howard. Under Treasury agents, large quantities of land were leased in the Mississippi Valley, and many Negroes were employed. But in August 1864, the new regulations were suspended for reasons of public policy, and the Army was again in control. Meanwhile, Congress had turned its attention to the subject, and in March the House passed a bill by a majority of two establishing a bureau for freedmen in the War Department. Charles Sumner, who had charge of the bill in the Senate, argued that freedmen and abandoned lands ought to be under the same department, and reported a substitute for the House bill attaching the bureau to the Treasury Department. This bill passed, but too late for action by the House. The debates wandered over the whole policy of the administration and the general question of slavery, without touching very closely the specific merits of the measure in hand. Then the national election took place, and the administration, with a vote of renewed confidence from the country, addressed itself to the matter more seriously. A conference between the two branches of Congress agreed upon a carefully drawn measure which contained the chief provisions of Sumner's bill, but made the proposed organization a department independent of both the war and the treasury officials. The bill was conservative, giving the new department general superintendence of all freedmen. Its purpose was to establish regulations for them, protect them, lease them lands, adjust their wages, and appear in civil and military courts as their next friend. There were many limitations attached to the power thus granted, and the organization was made permanent. Nevertheless, the Senate defeated the bill, and a new conference committee was appointed. This committee reported a new bill, February 28th, which was whirled through just as the session closed, and became the Act of 1865, establishing in the War Department a Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. This last compromise was a hasty bit of legislation, vague and uncertain in outline. A Bureau was created to continue during the present War of Rebellion and for one year thereafter to which was given the supervision and management of all lands and the control of all subjects relating to refugees and freedmen, under such rules and regulations as may be presented by the head of the Bureau and approved by the President. A commissioner appointed by the President and the Senate was to control the Bureau, with an office force not exceeding ten clerks. The President might also appoint assistant commissioners in the seceded states, and to all these offices military officials might be detailed at regular pay. The Secretary of War could issue rations, clothing, and fuel to the destitute, and all abandoned property was placed in the hands of the Bureau for eventual lease and sale to ex-slaves in forty-acre parcels. 
Thus did the United States government definitely assume charge of the emancipated Negro as the ward of the nation. It was a tremendous undertaking. Here, at a stroke of the pen, was erected a government of millions of men, and not ordinary men either, but black men emasculated by a peculiarly complete system of slavery centuries old. And now, suddenly, violently, they come into a new birthright, at a time of war and passion, in the midst of the stricken and embittered population of their former masters. Any man might well have hesitated to assume charge of such a work, with vast responsibilities, indefinite powers, and limited resources. Probably no one but a soldier would have answered such a call promptly. And indeed no one but a soldier could be called, for Congress had appropriated no money for salaries and expenses. Less than a month after the weary emancipator passed to his rest, his successor assigned Major General Oliver O. Howard to duty as commissioner of the new bureau. He was a Maine man, then only thirty-five years of age. He had marched with Sherman to the sea, had fought well at Gettysburg, and but the year before had been assigned to the command of the Department of Tennessee. An honest man with too much faith in human nature, little aptitude for business and intricate detail, he had had large opportunity of becoming acquainted at first hand with much of the work before him. And of that work it has been truly said that no approximately correct history of civilization can ever be written which does not throw out in bold relief as one of the great landmarks of political and social progress the organization and administration of the Freedmen's Bureau. On May 12, 1865, Howard was appointed, and he assumed the duties of his office promptly on the 15th, and began examining the field of work. A curious mess he looked upon. Little despotisms, communistic experiments, slavery, peonage, business speculations, organized charity, unorganized almsgiving, all reeling on under the guise of helping the freedmen, and all enshrined in the smoke and blood of the war and the cursing and silence of angry men. On May 19th the new government, for a government it really was, issued its constitution. Commissioners were to be appointed in each of the seceded states, who were to take charge of all subjects relating to refugees and freedmen, and all relief and rations were to be given by their consent alone. The Bureau invited continued cooperation with benevolent societies, and declared, It will be the object of all commissioners to introduce practicable systems of compensated labor and to establish schools. Forthwith nine assistant commissioners were appointed. They were to hasten to their fields of work, seek gradually to close relief establishments, and make the destitute self-supporting, act as courts of law where there were no courts, or where Negroes were not recognized in them as free establish the institution of marriage among ex-slaves and keep records, see that freedmen were free to choose their employers and help in making fair contracts for them. And finally the circular said, Simple good faith, for which we hope on all hands, for those concerned in the passing away of slavery, will especially relieve the assistant commissioners in the discharge of their duties toward the freedmen, as well as promote the general welfare. No sooner was the work thus started, and the general system and local organization in some measure begun, then two grave difficulties appeared which changed largely the theory and outcome of Bureau work. First there were the abandoned lands of the South. It had long been the more or less definitely expressed theory of the North that all the chief problems of emancipation might be settled by establishing the slaves on the forfeited lands of their masters. A sort of poetic justice, said some. But this poetry done into solemn prose meant either a wholesale confiscation of private property in the South or vast appropriations. 
Now Congress had not appropriated a cent, and no sooner did the proclamations of general amnesty appear than the 800,000 acres of abandoned lands in the hands of the Freedmen's Bureau melted quickly away. The second difficulty lay in perfecting the local organization of the Bureau throughout the wide field of work. Making a new machine and sending out officials of duly ascertained fitness for a great work of social reform is no child's task, but this task was even harder for a new central organization had to be fitted on a heterogeneous and confused but already existing system of relief and control of ex-slaves, and the agents available for this work must be sought for in an army still busy with war operations, men in the very nature of the case ill-fitted for delicate social work, or among the questionable camp-followers of an invading host. Thus, after a year's work, vigorously as it was pushed, the problem looked even more difficult to grasp and solve than at the beginning. Nevertheless, three things that year's work did, well worth the doing. It relieved a vast amount of physical suffering. It transported 7,000 fugitives from congested centers back to the farm. And best of all, it inaugurated the crusade of the New England schoolma'am. The annals of this Ninth Crusade are yet to be written. The tale of a mission that seemed to our age far more quixotic than the quest of St. Louis seemed to his. Behind the mists of ruin and rapine waved the calico dresses of women who dared, and after the hoarse mouthings of the field guns rang the rhythm of the alphabet. Rich and poor they were, serious and curious, bereaved now of a father, now of a brother, now of more than these, they came seeking a life-work in planting New England schoolhouses among the white and black of the South. They did their work well. In that first year they taught one hundred thousand souls and more. Evidently Congress must soon legislate again on the hastily organized Bureau, which had grown so quickly into wide significance and vast possibilities. An institution such as that was well-nigh as difficult to end as to begin. Early in 1866, Congress took up the matter when Senator Trumbull of Illinois introduced a bill to extend the Bureau and enlarge its powers. This measure received at the hands of Congress far more thorough discussion and attention than its predecessor. The war cloud had thinned enough to allow clearer conception of the work of emancipation. The champions of the bill argued that the strengthening of the Freedmen's Bureau was still a military necessity, that it was needed for the proper carrying out of the Thirteenth Amendment, and was a work of sheer justice to the ex-slave at a trifling cost to the government. The opponents of the measure declared that the war was over and the necessity for war measures passed, that the Bureau, by reason of its extraordinary powers, was clearly unconstitutional in time of peace, and was destined to irritate the South and pauperize the freedmen at a final cost of possibly hundreds of millions. These two arguments were unanswered, and indeed unanswerable. The one that the extraordinary powers of the Bureau threatened the civil rights of all citizens, and the other that the government must have power to do what manifestly must be done, and that present abandonment of the freedmen meant their practical re-enslavement. The bill which finally passed enlarged and made permanent the Freedmen's Bureau. It was promptly vetoed by President Johnson as unconstitutional, unnecessary, and extrajudicial, and failed of passage over the veto. Meantime, however, the breach between Congress and the President began to broaden, and a modified form of the lost bill was finally passed over the President's second veto, July 16th. The Act of 1866 gave the Freedmen's Bureau its final form, the form by which it will be known to posterity and judged of men. It extended the existence of the Bureau to July 1868, 
It authorized additional assistant commissioners, the retention of army officers mustered out of regular service, the sale of certain forfeited lands to freedmen on nominal terms, the sale of Confederate public property for Negro schools, and a wider field of judicial interpretation and cognizance. The government of the unreconstructed South was thus put very largely in the hands of the Freedmen's Bureau, especially as in many cases the departmental military commander was now made also assistant commissioner. It was thus that the Freedmen's Bureau became a full-fledged government of men. It made laws, executed them, and interpreted them. It laid and collected taxes, defined and punished crime, maintained and used military force, and dictated such measures as it thought necessary and proper for the accomplishment of its varied ends. Naturally, all these powers were not exercised continuously, nor to their fullest extent. And yet, as General Howard has said, scarcely any subject that has to be legislated upon in civil society failed at one time or another to demand the action of this singular bureau. End of chapter 2, part 1